Our scripture reading this morning is about Elijah. Ahab told his wife Jezebel that Elijah had what Elijah had done and that he had killed the prophets. She sent a message to Elijah. You killed my prophets. Now I'm going to kill you. I pray that the gods will punish me even more severely if I don't do it by this time tomorrow. Elijah was afraid when he got her message and he ran to the town of Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there. Then he walked another whole day into the desert. Finally, he came to a large bush and sat down in its shade. He begged the Lord, I've had enough, just let me die. I'm no better off than my ancestors. Then he lay down in the shade and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel woke him up and said, Get up and eat. Elijah looked around, and by his head was a jar of water and some baked bread. He sat up, ate and drank, then lay down and went back to sleep. Soon the Lord's angel woke him again and said, Get up and eat, or else you'll get too tired to travel. So Elijah sat up and ate and drank. The food and water made him strong enough to walk 40 more days. At last he reached Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, and he spent the night there in a cave. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nikki. Good morning. Well, the sermon today is How Does God Feel About Human Failure? We modern Americans are brutal. We judge ourselves and each other by success or failure. Athletes, politicians, business leaders, stockbrokers, all the same theme. But there's more. When we fail, we expect to learn, to use failure to build the next success. We're a tough, tough crowd. But are we right? Does God hate failure as much as we do? Does God expect us to use grace to build success out of our failure? Well, Elijah's story tells us how God responds when we crash and burn. What does God do when Elijah ditches God's plan and runs out of Dodge? What does God do? Does God insist that we grow through our pain? Or does God just love us anyway? What does scripture tell us? Well, Elisha's story starts in 1 Kings chapter 17. His name means Yahweh is my God. His very name is a bold statement within the religious and political context of Israel in that day. Fifty-eight years earlier, the northern kingdom had split off from Judah and Benjamin. And Judah had a few good kings. Israel had none. The Bible says each Israelite king was worse than the one before. Moral decay, political corruption, overtaxation, and forced labor. It all consumed any legacy of loyalty left over from King David. Well, King Ahab of Israel marries Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Tyre, in order to gain political and economic advantages. Well, Jezebel is a willful, ruthless woman dominates Ahab. She installs 450 priests of Baal, a deity thought to control wind, clouds, rain, and therefore fertility and prosperity. 
Jezebel murders every Yahwist you can find. Well, Psalm 11 asks, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that's a pertinent question. Well, righteous Elijah is from Tishba, a village in Gilead, east of the Jordan River. Dry, rocky, rough ground, suitable only for native, hardy sheep and goats. <clears throat> rough country makes tough people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Elijah wears a garment of black camel's hair with a leather belt. He appeared to be what he was, separated, ascetic, totally focused on God's will and God's word. Unannounced, out of nowhere, Elijah shows up in Ahab's court in Samaria. <clears throat> okay. Well, naturally, Ahab's court is dedicated to fertility and prosperity. And Elijah stands before Ahab and proclaims, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Well, Elijah claims Yahweh is the God of all creation, the source of all life, fertility, and prosperity. And as his servant, Elijah also claims personal control of the weather. Well, so much for Baal and wind and clouds and rain and fertility, huh? So Ahab says nothing, stunned. Elijah walks out. God leads him to a creek east of the Jordan. Elijah drinks from the brook and eats roadkill that ravens bring to him. Skies are clear and dry. Food supplies are exhausted. Creek dries up. God sends Elijah to Zarephath, a village near the Mediterranean north of Israel. He's still out of reach. God prompts a widow to share her last scraps of food with Elijah. And God sustains the family as the drought deepens and famine grows more desperate. Elijah revives the widow's son and brings them both to faith in the one true God. Well, after three years, God is ready to draw his challenge to Baal to a climax. Elijah meets Ahab and calls him to gather on Mount Carmel, the people of Israel, and Jezebel's 450 priests of Baal. Ahab meekly obeys. Elijah proposes a duel between Baal and Yahweh. Let's set up two altars and two sacrifices and see which God replies. It's a deal. The priests of Baal prepare their sacrifice. They dance and pray and slash themselves all day long. But our hope for fertility doesn't respond. Our yearning for prosperity doesn't answer. Meanwhile, Elijah repairs Yahweh's altar, prepares his sacrifice, and for good measure dumps four big jars of water over the whole thing. He prays, and God sends fire that consumes the sacrifice and evaporates the water. Well, impressed, the crowd seizes the 450 priests of Baal and murders them. Dismayed, Ahab heads back to Jezebel in Samaria in his chariot, and rain begins to fall. Elijah is so pumped, he runs ahead of Ahab's horses for several miles. Lord God, Yahweh, absolutely wins the day. Well, the Bible reports history with amazing accuracy. God also infuses these stories with meaning for us. Who do I know like Elijah? Who is that focused, that confident? 
Elijah isn't risk tolerant. He seeks out risk. Who is like that? Well, I am a brutal American. I knew young men in Wall Street. Every morning they show up, ready to make a fortune before the market closes that day. They expect to change the world with the power of their profound, unique insights. They announce that we old geezers are unimaginative, short-sighted, and shallow. And they listen to us only to identify our shortcomings and to profit thereby. Well, soon, many of them drop away. And their survivors learn from their failures that being unimaginative, short-sighted, and shallow can bring big returns. Well, okay. We old geezers can guess what Jezebel does next. Puts a price on Elijah's head. And suddenly, Elijah realizes that he could die. For the first time in his young, ardent life, Elijah feels fear. Suddenly seizes crazy risks as genuine perils, not as proofs of faith. At the apex of God's triumph through him, at the peak of his fame and political credibility, Elijah runs for his life. He escapes south into Judea, beyond Jezebel's reach. And he pauses, and then he runs further, deep into the Sinai Desert. Comes to a broom bush, sits down under it, and prays that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he says. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lies down under the bush and falls asleep. Well, Elijah fails. How can you be a prophet of the Lord, the God of creation, source of all life, fertility, and prosperity, and then run away from anybody's threats? You can't. Centuries later, St. Paul said, "Living living is Christ and dying is gain. Not Elijah. Not Eli- and not me, not me, an American who survived on Wall Street. I love life. Life is more success. More life is just good. I will endure failure as the price of learning how to win. But I want to win, and I want to live. I hate the process. Sour self-rage, self-reproach. But I will endure it all as long as I learn how to win. Well, that's me. What does God think and feel? Well, God's never failed. And maybe with his omniscience, he's never been failed. But what does God do with Elijah? God sends an angel to the broom bush, not to accuse, demote, or fire anybody. No, this angel delivers fresh hot bread and clean water. The angel wakes Elijah up, tells him that God wants him to eat. Whatever chaos we've caused, whatever opportunities we've ditched, God cares first about our health and well-being. Elijah wants to die, and God says no. Centuries later, Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread. God loves life. Has no fear of death, but loves life. So Elijah eats, drinks, and crashes back to sleep. Hours later, the angel appears again with a new spread of food and drink. Elijah eats, drinks, and walks deep into the waste of the Sinai Desert. And God leads him to Mount Sinai. 
At the spot where Moses got the Ten Commandments, God draws Elijah back to the beginning, the beginning of his faith. Elijah finds a cave, spends the night. After our health and well-being, God wants to be close to us. And to do that, God needs us to be clear about who and what we are and where we're going. At dawn, God asks, Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, that is the perfect open question to begin a business reprimand interview. I've been on both sides of the desk in a whole lot of business reprimand interviews. And I know the human resources textbook answers. Elijah's here to escape mortal danger. He's here to find out what to do, where to go next, how to build his life over again. He's here because he hates what he's done. All our modern American human resources department answers invite introspection, encourage personal growth. Our entire culture wants to learn from failure. We all want to succeed. But no, Elijah doesn't take the introspection bait. He tells God, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me, too. Elijah sees himself as the innocent victim of overwhelming force. No scope for personal growth here, right? Well, who's right? Elijah or success-crazed Americans? I'm not sure. I can assemble arguments. God sees the world in terms of eternity. God built us to live forever, obviously, built to live forever. God knows whatever risk and anguish we endure for our few years here on earth will all dissolve to glory in eternity. Therefore, for God, there are no victims. God is the only overwhelming force, and God knows it. Self-pity can only blind us to our eternal possibilities. It seems to me God is trying to jostle Elijah out of his self-absorption to recognize that he stands within eternal reality. So God tells Elijah to leave his cave so that he can watch God pass by. And Elijah doesn't budge. From inside the cave, Elijah hears the wind, feels the earthquake, smells the fire. God tries to show him that power surrounds, protects him, and invites him forward. And Elijah huddles in his cave, having none of it. Then God comes to Elijah in a small, still voice, and that seems to reach the target. Elijah takes heart, moves to the mouth of the cave, and peeks out. Again, God asks, Elijah, what are you doing here? But Elijah still won't look within, still won't learn from failure. Elijah, in his own mind, is still a faithful victim of overwhelming force. The glory of God has passed by, and Elijah is still the same. Nothing has moved. Word for word, Elijah repeats 
his first answer. So what's God to do? Failure is incredibly painful. A good boss knows that the pain can carry with it a wealth of insights, ideas, possible remedies. And a good boss wants to work through the pain and get to the wealth. But if an American employee won't even try, the failure becomes fatal. The boss has no choice. He's got to take the kid off the trading floor and send him back to the accounting department. Well, I am a success-crazed American, mindful of my biases, but it seems to me as if God wants Elijah to grow, and Elijah is too frightened of his feelings to try. Well, from my biased American point of view, Elijah fatally compounds his failure. And what does God do? God loves Elijah desperately. Elijah, no, he still stands in God's immediate presence. God gives him credit, responsibility, and a key place in salvation history. God sends him not back to the accounting department, but to Damascus to set the table for future events. Well, friends, God has got to be right. I care intensely about winning. I want to use failure to win. God is not brutal. God doesn't seem to care. God loves us too much to get distracted by our little notions of success. Succeed, fail, or stagnate. God loves us with infinite intensity. And here I am. Could it be that I am too tough on other people and myself? Could it be? Could be. Well, there's one way I could be wrong about Elijah. In the beginning, we saw, cited Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And it's still the right question. Maybe the foundational evil of Ahab, Jezebel, and Baal can't be stopped by righteousness. It can only be stopped by butchery, and that means butchers. So God sends Elijah to, the, to Damascus to anoint Hazael as king of Aram. Hazael will invade the kingdom of Israel and kill a whole lot of people. Next, God sends Elijah to Jehu to anoint Jehu as a usurping king of Israel. Jehu starts a civil war, mops up after Hazael, and then Elijah anoints Elisha, who mopped up after the other two. Maybe foundational evil requires butchers. Maybe Elijah has done everything that God needs him to do. But either way, we're left with the relationship between God and Elijah. No matter what we do, God can't love us any more than he already does. God can't love us any less, no matter what we do. Our little triumphs and tragedies get left behind when we enter eternity. And when I get into a twist about stocks going up or down, it's a comfort to know I can't take it with me. All I can take is Jesus, and that's okay. Amen.